This episode of The Florida Files contains graphic descriptions that some listeners may find disturbing. In Adam Walsh's memory, flags at city buildings here will fly at half-mast through Saturday until after the funeral. A visual reminder that, in its own way, an entire community shares the terrible anguish the Walsh family is suffering. Police are taking more than 200 calls an hour on the Walsh case. One detective describes the barrage of phone calls here as a madhouse. At a Hollywood funeral home, people stop by all afternoon to express sympathy to Adam Walsh's family. Many of those who come here are strangers, people who never knew young Adam Walsh. And here, too, there are police detectives present to look for anything that might further their investigation as they try to find Adam Walsh's killer. Steve Bosquet, Newswatch 10, Hollywood. Local 10 and Local10.com present the Florida Files. I'm Michelle Solomon, and this is the story of the disappearance of Adam Walsh. In the aftermath of finding Adam's severed head in a canal near the Florida Turnpike, Two weeks after his disappearance on July 27, 1981, police question suspects, even going back to some of the initial people they've already interviewed. One of them is James Campbell, the family friend who lived at the Walsh's until a week before Adam's murder. He's being eyed by the lead detective on the case, Jack Hoffman. On his first polygraph test on August 7th, Campbell admits to having a four-year affair with Reve Walsh. That gives cops an easy out, the perfect solution, an ending that would play out like a TV movie. Miami Beach Police Detective Joe Matthews was hired by the Hollywood Police Department early in the investigation to do polygraphs, and he's called back to perform the second lie detector test on Campbell. They ignored all other leads just to focus on him, and that's where it was the ruination of the case. Jimmy Campbell had nothing to do with anything. He's an honorable guy, and um, and he had an alibi that was fail-safe. I mean, he was he rented these um, windsurfing, and they did a commercial, and they had him in the background going back and forth, back and forth. The day Adam went missing, you know, and yet um, you know they still kept him as a prime suspect. And by keeping him as a prime suspect, even after I eliminated him as a suspect. And we made a deal. He said, you polygraph him a second time, you know, to make sure you're right. And then if he's eliminated the second time as a suspect, then I'll drop it. So I rescheduled it, and that was the day that uh, they found Adam's head. Matthew's summary statement from August 10, 1981, says this. Mr. Campbell showed no physiological reactions, which would be indicative of being deceptive on any of the relevant questions asked. Therefore is in the opinion of this examiner, based on Mr. Campbell's exam, that he responded truthfully. Police continue to follow up on other tips. A woman's account of an attempted abduction at this Sears store in North Palm Beach has police interested. The woman told detectives she saw a man chase after a young boy here a month ago. Two Hollywood detectives went to North Palm Beach today to question four Sears employees. 
The detectives said it was possible the woman saw a security guard chase a young shoplifting suspect, but they emphasized they still have to question several more people, including the 10-year-old boy who was the target of the supposed abduction attempt. While those detectives were in Palm Beach County, other investigators here questioned a 10-year-old boy who was in the Hollywood Sears store July 27th, the day Adam Walsh disappeared. With his mother's permission, the boy was placed under hypnosis for nearly an hour and a half and gave police a description of a man and vehicle outside Sears that day. The boy described a late model navy blue Ford van with a black front bumper, a chrome ladder on the left rear, shiny mag wheels, tinted windows, and Florida license plates. And the same boy described a man getting into the van as 5 feet 10 to 6 feet tall, medium to heavy build, with dark hair and a mustache. A description not unlike the one furnished by a Palm Beach County woman yesterday. Carrie Weston, who is working Channel 10's Broward Bureau assignment desk, remembers the blue van. The other thing I remember well was the blue van and them stopping all types of blue vans. And I'd hear it on the scanner because it was part of my job to be sitting next to the police scanners. And blue van after blue van, they were getting stopped and searched. And here all the time, it may have been a station wagon or a sedan that they should have been looking for. But police say the boy and his grandmother tell them they saw the van at around 1.30 p.m. And that's not consistent with the time Adam's mother says he disappeared. In August, a man is stopped by Florida Highway Patrol for drunk driving, and police find a machete in his car. Could he be responsible for decapitating the boy? And then there's the strange call to police from Fort Pierce, Florida in October. That's from a guy who says the person who killed Adam is being paid by the CIA to kill certain people. They chase down leads, but nothing police think is solid, until... October 10, 1983. It's a little over two years since Adam's abduction. Five hours north of Hollywood, Florida, where Adam disappeared, a 36-year-old drifter with an IQ of 75 and no more than a seventh grade education is in a Jacksonville jail. He's awaiting charges for setting fire to a house and killing a man. A detective is grilling Otis Elwood Toole about a murder that happened in Cocoa Beach, Florida. Toole says he doesn't know anything about that one, but he has something else to talk about. The abduction of a little boy from outside of Sears near Fort Lauderdale. Hollywood police go to Jacksonville to interview Toole. Connie Hicks, reporting for Channel 10, reveals details of Toole's confession. He told detectives he'd kidnapped a child who said his name was Adam from a Fort Lauderdale area mall. A spur-of-the-moment decision to take the child and raise the child as his own. July 27, 1981, six-year-old Adam disappeared from a Hollywood mall. His head was found two weeks later, 125 miles away, in a canal west of Vero Beach. Toole tells detectives the child became rowdy in his car as he was heading north to Jacksonville, and he slapped the daylights out of him. In an autopsy of the head, the medical examiner determined Adam had received blows to the face and had a fracture to the nose. In 1983, Toole said he grabbed Adam around the throat and started to choke him using both hands, and he never regained consciousness. In 1981, the medical examiner believed Adam was dead before decapitation. 
Toole told detectives he used two hands to swing the machete approximately half a dozen times to decapitate the child. The medical examiner had ruled the killer had to use two hands on the machete for the necessary force. Police feel that they have their man. On October 22, 1983, they call a late-night press conference to announce the break in the case. Wednesday, the same date, our detectives flew up to Jacksonville. They spent quite a while uh, talking to Mr. Toole, and he gave them a oral statement at that time. They brought Mr. Toole back. We spent all afternoon and tonight in the area where he said that he disposed of the body of young Adam Walsh. Did you, did you find the body? We have not found the body. They've driven into the mall for the express purpose of abducting an individual. Saw young Adam standing on the sidewalk by the west door of the Sears. He was outside the building. He lured him over to his car, promised him candy and toys, and he forced him inside the car. He drove him out to the uh, Florida Turnpike at Hollywood Boulevard and proceeded northbound. We can't get into any more de details after he once got on the turnpike. We have had conversation with detectives from uh, from Jacksonville. He advised me a few minutes ago that uh, Toole had confessed to somewhere between 35 and 50 homicides. He and Lucas have traveled since 1976, with the exception of Hawaii and Alaska, have killed somebody in each and every state. I heard some of the details regarding the homicides that made Charles Manson sound like Tom Sawyer. John Walsh walked into a crowded room at the Hollywood police station this afternoon to talk to reporters about the arrest of a suspect in his son's murder. It was the same room where 27 months ago, John Walsh first made a public plea for the safe return of his six-year-old son. John Walsh would not see Adam alive ever again. This was Walsh's reaction to the news that police finally have a suspect in Adam's abduction and murder. Relief. many feelings. I can't comment on this individual, but we are relieved that he is off the streets. We pray that the criminal justice system will not break down and Adam will receive justice. Police take into custody a 1971 Cadillac that they track down on a used car lot. It's a black over white four-door and matches the same description as the one Tool says he was driving when he snatched the child. The car is registered to a woman named Faye McNett, who works at the same Jacksonville roofing company as Toole. She tells detectives she sold the car to the auto dealer after Toole failed to make promised payments to her. The cops take the car as evidence. Hollywood resident Arlene Mayer is drinking her coffee on a Saturday morning and reading the newspaper when her daughter Heidi Lynn passes by the kitchen table. It's the day after that late night press conference. 14-year-old Heidi Lynn sees a photograph of a disheveled man on the front page that police say has confessed to a little boy's murder. She says to her mother, there's that man. I said, I know that's the man. That's the man who tried to 
kidnap me at the Kmart, or take me at the Kmart. I didn't use the word kidnap. I, I don't remember what I said. Or take me at the um, at the Kmart. Was it, it was a few days, probably three or four days before Adam Walsh went missing. How far was that Kmart from the from that Hollywood Mall Sears? Do you remember? Oh, Kmart. Kmart was on. 441 in Washington Street, yeah. okay, and Sears Mall was on North Park Road, I think it's North Park Road, and mm-hmm. Hollywood Boulevard, right across the street from the Hollywood Police Department, of all places. Right. And you... I'm literally, literally maybe, maybe two miles, three miles away. Right. Do you remember seeing... Uh, the newscast when they were frantically looking for him from the Sears store or not? I don't. I, yes, I remember him going missing. I remember. I remember everything that was going on. But in, you know, during that time frame, never put two and two together. Heidi Lynn Mayer is now Heidi Lynn Butler, married and a mother with three grown children. And when you saw that, it was a couple of years after because there was two Yeah, years it was a couple of years after. So it was something that stayed in my memory. For, I mean, for I, was in, I talked to my husband about it today when I called him, and I said, you know, somebody called me to tell Ted um, regards to the Adam Walsh case. Um, and wanted to talk to me about it. I said, you know, I said, this is something that I've lived with my pretty much my whole life. Um, to know that this man tried to kidnap me, like like I said, three to four days prior to um, he got out of Walsh. How old were you then? I must say about eleven years old. Mm-hmm. I think I was about eleven. So, how do you know he was? trying to take you oh he he confronted me in the store he came up to me and um started talking to me i was looking at stuff on one of the toy aisles or whatever and he he watched us he watched my mom and i get out of the car and he watched us walk in and as soon as i separated from my mother because she went to go pay for her layaway and i went off down another aisle um he made his he made his move. I mean, then he started talking to me, just asking these stupid questions, little random questions here and there. Um, and then he then he says, um, he goes, "How about you go with me with my shopping cart?" And that's when you know I I was smart enough to know that this was trouble, and I needed to run. And I remember running at that point and running for my mom. And we reported it that night to the, who, I guess the security officer at Kmart that night. So they have record even back then that somebody tried to pick me up then in, um, that's it. And then when we saw the newspaper article a couple years later, I saw the newspaper article and I said, you know what? I said, that is the man who tried to get me. And I know that that's the man who tried to get me. I'll never forget the face. What do you remember about him? What do I remember about him? He was creepy looking. Yeah. He was a very creepy looking man. He was a creepy looking individual. It, it's just something so tragic that 
uh, and how it even affected me. It affected my life. Growing up, um, I was never one to go out at night by myself. I wouldn't go out at, at night by myself. Um, then when I had children, um, I hate to use the word helicopter mom. I was one that was very protective of my kids. If we went to a store or whatever, they knew they were not allowed to leave me. Um, and because I was always had that fear that, you know what, it happened to me or it could have happened to me, it could happen to them. So they showed you pictures when they came to interview you um, when I was reading in the police report from, from October 24th, 1983. And they showed you some pictures, and you saw the picture that they showed you. It said in the police report, and you're, you said, oh, that's without a doubt. This guy right here. That was here. because of his teeth. His teeth is what got me. His teeth. The, the space between his teeth. I'll never forget his face. Yeah. And that, you know, and I, and I will You know, and it's, um, it was not as... It's something that you can't forget. You know, and it's funny because back then, there was nothing to play outside all day long or, or to walk to the local convenience store, you know, and everything. You you were able to do all that. And see, and that's the stuff that at 11 years old, because of him trying to grab me in that store and take me from that store, it always drew caution to me, kind of took that innocent, not that, I'm going to say the innocent away, but always took that fear in me that, you know what, it could happen again. Um, it's, it's, I'm sorry that that happened to you, though. I I, I oh, just feel, you. I feel for you. So I think it made me the person who I am today, though. To be honest with you, it made me, it made me a stronger person. From October 1983 to January 1984, Toole makes at least seven more confessions to the crime. The most chilling is caught on tape in an interview with a Texas Ranger. The Ranger is prodding him about his prolific killing sprees with his lover and partner in crime, Henry Lee Lucas. You don't kill one and you can't kill it and kill it, it gets, it gets easier and easier and it don't, it don't really bother you. Have you ever wished you hadn't killed someone? Well, I kind of feel bad about that Adam Norris kid. That's the only person you've ever killed that you feel bad about? That's the youngest child I ever killed. He's only six years old. But as fast as he would confess, he would recant. And sometimes his stories didn't fit. His description of what Adam was wearing was off too. He said the boy he took from the mall was wearing a blue shirt, jeans, and sneakers, and had blonde curly hair. Remember Reve's description of what Adam was wearing that day? A striped Izod shirt, green shorts, and flip-flops. And Adam's hair was sandy brown. Toole tells detectives during one confession that Lucas was with him. Lucas was the one who found Adam running through the mall parking lot, and that it was Lucas who, quote, chopped the kid's head off. I wouldn't have killed the kid like that myself, he says. Trouble is, Lucas is locked up in a Maryland prison on the day that Adam disappeared. 
But he does know some things that only the murderer would know. On October 22, 1983, Tool is taken from the Duval County Jail with the purpose of him showing police where he dumped Adam's body. As they drive him in a van past mile marker 126 on Florida's Turnpike, more than an hour north of Hollywood, Tool points out the window and tells them to pull off. This is where I stopped. This is where I killed that kid. Remember patrolman Mark Smith who saw the Walshes in the Sears parking lot the day after Adam disappeared? He's now a retired Hollywood police detective. He was reassigned the case in 1994 and says a lot makes sense as far as Tool being Adam's abductor and killer. Nobody did know how a kid would just vanish into thin air. Right. And, and you know, the fact that the, you know, his severed head was found 124 miles north on the turnpike, which um, would, would add credence to, to someone from Jacksonville being involved, kind of, kind of, you know, kind of fit. I mean, it's, it's not, it's not like it was found, you know, in the Everglades. It was someone that went north after abducting him. So it kind of fits the oddest tool. And then they took him out and had him kind of. Yes, they, they drove him. They drove him. And all the reports I read indicated he was accurate as far as where he pulled off and uh, decapitated. And then when he went farther north and and started the the severed head in the in the canal. Uh, all the reports indicated that he apparently was pretty much accurate about the description. There was no body and little evidence. An examination of the Cadillac's interior, done by the Florida Department of Law Enforcement Crime Lab, reports that hairs found in the Cadillac do not belong to Adam Walsh. The carpet of the car is kept as evidence and sent to either the Jacksonville or Hollywood Police Department. Eventually, the car ends up again on a used car lot. Then, it's sold for scrap. Though police lost track of the carpet samples in the Cadillac, they say lab tests conducted found traces of blood inside the car, where a tool said he tossed Adam's severed head. That was before DNA testing. Joe Matthews says that losing that car and that carpet was one of the biggest mistakes of the case. That car was, I remember, a pinnacle missing piece of everything because well, they had had that car. They had the car. When he was arrested, they recovered the car from a parking lot that he sold the car to. For the arson. He was arrested for the arson. Yeah. Okay. And, and they found the car in a used car lot. In the car, they found a machete. And uh, they had the car processed by FDLE, Florida Department of Law Enforcement. And, um, and in reading everything, I knew FDLE processed the car. Um, there was a, um, the description of the right rear bumper that was damaged. 
And I remembered somewhere in all these thousands of pages I read somebody saying how he bumped, bumped into his car and da damaged the right rear bumper. So I wanted to know, was that damage done after the abduction or before the abduction? Significant if it was before. And, I, and, and it wasn't like you could punch in something, like damage to a car and you find it. And I found it. Bobby Lee Jones was a cellmate and a co-worker of Otis Tour with the roofing company. And he backed up his pickup into Otis's Cadillac when he had the Cadillac, and he damaged the right rear bumper. How'd you find that? There wasn't a little line in a, in, a, in a report when they talked to Bobby Lee Jones. Somebody else talked to him. And, and how it came up is, you know, do you know Otis Tour? Yeah, you know, what do you think of him? I think he's crazy. One time I bumped into his car, and I was afraid he was going to kill me if he found out. I never told him. Car was like I thought. Oh, they so they, they processed the vehicle completely, and um, and they uh, took samples of blood that was found in the car and all that samples of the carpeting, and um, and they they shipped. They didn't want to keep all the samples of the carpeting, so they got a box, and they shipped it, and they they, they couldn't find the papers where they shipped it to, but it was signed. And it was signed with a J. Now, it could have been J for Jack Hoffman, you know, or it could have been a J, but everybody that saw it said that was his thing. And supposedly he had a box underneath his desk for a long time until one day somebody in, you know, when they're cleaning the office says, is this garbage? Yeah, yeah, throw it away. That's what they suspect. But that's people's opinion. It's been a year since Otis Toole confessed to the heinous crime, the kidnapping, beating, and beheading of a six-year-old. But on October 19, 1984, Hollywood police announced they are putting the case into an inactive file. At this point, it's a dead end, says a spokesperson from the Hollywood Police Department. There's no new information, and the case is not moving forward. Toole is now the only suspect in the case. But all they have are his confessions, and not enough evidence to convict him. Whether it gives the Walsh's solace, no one is sure. But some may say Tool is getting his due anyway. On May 11, 1984, a jury imposes a death sentence on Tool for an unrelated murder, and he is sent to Florida's death row. Up next on The Florida Files, a mother wants justice. Get more of the story through archive videos and online extras on The Florida Files page at local10.com.